In doctors, we build trust and good rapport. We trust them with our health, well-being, and some of the most sensitive information about ourselves. But what if the doctor we put our trust in is a serial killer, using his stature as a medical professional to target his victims? This is the case of Harold Shipman. Trigger warning, murder, medical jargon, professional code of conduct, unaliving of oneself. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Shit Detectives. This is another episode of Our Shenanigans. If you aren't in the right mind frame to listen to the topics raised in the trigger warnings, then please look after yourself. We hope to see you in next week's episode. Today we are delving into one of the UK's most prolific serial killers, known as Harold Shipman. As we continue to kickstart the new year with our Angels of Death Month. So let's jump right in with the background. Over to Echo. Thank you, Turtle. Harold was born on the 14th of January 1946 to a working class family in a hospital in Nottingham, England. His father, also known as Harold Shipman, was a lorry driver and his mother, Vera, was a homemaker. He studied at High Pavement Grammar School, sixth form in 1956 and was an avid rugby player as a child. He was the middle child and was also known as Fred because his middle name was Frederick and was the favourite child of his mother who has been described as domineering. One neighbour is quoted as saying that Vera was friendly enough but she really did see her family as superior to the rest of us. Not only that You could tell Harold was her favourite, the one she saw the most promising of her three children. Vera would would decide who Shipman would play with and when. She wanted to distinguish him from the other boys, so he was the... So he was the one always... God's sake. She wanted to distinguish him from the other boys, So he was the one who always wore a tie when his siblings were allowed to dress more casually. His sister Pauline was seven years older than him and his brother Clive was four years younger. However, Vera held the most hope for Harold. He grew up on a council estate and it's reported that his family were very religious with them following Methodism, part of the Methodist church. He was described as a bright child growing up and initially became interested in medicine as he watched Vera, his mother, receive morphine injections to ease the pain she suffered while she was dying of lung cancer. He willingly oversaw her care as she deteriorated and a fascination into the positive effect that the administration of morphine had on her suffering prospered. She lost her life to lung cancer on the 21st of June 1963. Before her death, Vera instilled in Harold an early sense of superiority that appeared to taint most of his later relationships and would leave him an isolated adolescent with very few friends. Harold was devastated by her death, but it instilled in him a determination to attend medical school. In 1970, he received a medical degree from Leeds University, which he commenced attendance at only two years after his mother's passing. He did fail the entrance exams the first time, 
before serving his hospital internship. He remained a loner, but did meet his future wife, Primrose, at the age of 19. They got married when she was 17 and five months pregnant with their first child. It would only take him a few years to become a general practitioner, known as a GP, in Todmorden in Lancashire. By this time, he was also a father of two. While working there, he was very involved in social functions like the Rochdale Canal Commission. However, he started suffering with blackouts in public, which were initially believed to be epilepsy. However, in 1975, he was discovered to have written multiple fraudulent prescriptions for an opiate called pethidine. The patients who had been prescribed pethidine were questioned, but none of them admitted to ever having received the powerful narcotic. Shipman had developed an addiction to the drug, and that explained the blackouts. Subsequently, he was forced out of his practice and into drug rehabilitation. In 1977, he found work as a GP in the town of Hyde, located in Greater Manchester. The practice that accepted him into the staff was called Donnybrook Medical Centre. It was here he ingratiated himself as a hard-working doctor who enjoyed the trust... who enjoyed the trust of patients and colleagues alike. He did develop a bit of a reputation for arrogance amongst the junior staff. It was here that he gained respectability and developed a thriving practice. He remained on staff at Donnybrook Medical Centre for almost two decades. Over to Turtle with The Crime. Thank you, Echo. I'll try not to take two decades to read it out. <laughs> Shipman had the subject of a police investigation after Dr. Linda Reynolds, a principal of the Brook practice, which practiced from the premises opposite Shipman's surgery, reported her concerns and those of her partners regarding the number of Shipman's patients who were dying and the circumstances of their deaths to Mr John Pollard, the HM coroner for Greater Manchester South District. At the request of Mr John Pollard, a confidential investigation was carried out by the Greater Manchester Police. This investigation was conducted by Detective Inspector David Smith under the supervision of the Chief Superintendent David Sykes. The investigation ended on the 17th of April 1997 and concluded that there was no substance in Dr Reynolds' concerns. Dr Reynolds made her report to the coroner due to two particular grounds of concern. The first was that she knew that Shipman, who was a single-handed practitioner, had signed 16 crem cremation forms in three previous months, whereas the Brook practice, which had a patient base of 9,500, had only 14 patient deaths in the same period. Shipman's patient list was approximately one third the size of Brook practice list. To add to this, the figure of 16 cremations wouldn't include deaths which had occurred in the hospital or deaths that followed by burial and deaths certified by the coroner. The effect of these factors was that if Shipman's practice followed the usual pattern, those cremations which members of the Brook practice were aware of were likely to represent no more than about 21% at most of Shipman's total deaths during the relevant period. Given the fact that Shipman had a patient list which was approximately a third of the size of the Brooks practice, 
it was apparent that the disparity between the number of deaths of the patients in Shipman's practice and in the Brook practice was potentially very large indeed. It was this disparity which concerned Dr Reynolds and the other members of the Brook practice. The second concern was the presence of features which appeared rather characteristic of the deaths. The deceased persons were usually elderly women who would be found dead at home, seemingly alone and fully dressed. None of them appeared to have been ill either, and Shipman often found them dead. These features were highly unusual for the following reasons. To start with, it is more common for deaths to be more or less equally distributed between men and women. The next is that most deaths at home occur after a period of illness whereby the patient is bedbound and relatives and friends are in attendance. Another is that it isn't common for a general practitioner to be present at the death of a patient or to discover a patient dead. Mrs Deborah Bambroff, a partner in the firm Frank M Macy and Son Funeral Directors, had also expressed concerns to Dr Reynolds about those features, but she wanted to remain anonymous. And Dr Reynolds informed the coroner of this. Thus, Dr Reynolds didn't disclose Miss Bambroff's identity to the coroner. Dr Reynolds also told Mr Pollard that she had signed a cremation form C for one of Shipman's patients a few days before. Mr Pollard did not discover the identity of that patient, nor did he explore the possibility that the body might still be available for autopsy. After the investigation, Shipman went on to kill three more patients before he would be arrested. Those patients were Mrs. Winifred Meller, Mrs. Joe Melia, and Mrs. Grindy. It is practically impossible to establish exactly when Shipman started to kill his patients, just as it is impossible to establish exactly how many patients died at his hands. His killing spree was only brought to an end thanks to the determination of a woman called Angela Woodruff. She was the daughter of one of his victims and had refused to accept the ex explanations Shipman had given her for her mother's death. And just before we go to Echo for a quiz question, I would like to take a moment on behalf of the ship detectives to uh, send out our thoughts to the victims and their families of Harold Shipman, however many there are. It is estimated that he murdered as many as 250 of his patients. So that is a lot of people. It's a lot of people and we couldn't name all of them and we couldn't include all of them. And even then we'd possibly still be wrong. So to any and all Harold Shipman victims, you're in our thoughts. Over to Echo with the quiz question answer. Now, before we do continue on to the investigation, which is our next segment of this episode, we are going to take this brief break for last week's True Crime Quiz Question Answer. So, gather in fellow shit detectives, put on your detective hats, and see if you know the answer to the following question. And see if you knew the answer to the following question. Which infamous American kidnapper, murderer, and R-worder twice managed to escape custody before his execution by the electric chair in 1989 for killing 30 women? The answer was Ted Bundy. So if you got the answer right, 
then it's time to get yourself a nice glass of wine because you deserve it. And smash that like button. Don't forget to stay tuned for this week's true crime quiz question later in the episode. Now, back to the case with The Investigation. Handing it back to you, Turtle. Dr Shipman's patients seem to be dying at an unusually high rate and they seem to exhibit similar poses in death. They were fully clothed and would usually be sitting up or reclining on a setting, also known as a sofa or a couch. This was noticed by the local undertaker who became so concerned he approached Shipman directly but was reassured that it was nothing to be concerned about. So let's discuss. Um, let's start by discussing the processes of the first investigation into Dr. Shipman following Dr. Reynolds. The coroner communicated her concerns to C.S. Sykes and G.I. Smith. He explained that Dr. Reynolds had advanced two explanations. Either, either of these might account for the factors that gave rise to her concerns. The first was that Dr. Shipman was in fact a caring doctor who looked after his elderly and sick patients in their homes rather than having them admitted to hospital and would visit them frequently when he knew them to be ill. The second explanation was that he was killing his patients. D.I. Smith initiated his investigation by interviewing Dr. Reynolds. From what was written in the inquiry, this ensued. Following Dr. Shipman's conviction, G.I. Smith sought to diminish the seriousness and credibility of Dr. Reynolds' concerns. The inquiry concluded that he did this in the hope of avoiding criticism in respect of his conduct of the investigation. However, when providing oral evidence to the inquiry, G.I. Smith abandoned this tactic and admitted for the first time that Dr. Reynolds had told him early in their meeting that she she thought Shipman was killing his patients. through lack of care or by murdering them, and if, it, that was, and if that was the case, that Dr. Shipman was murdering them, then he was doing it by administering some sort of drug. D.I. Smith had also denied that Dr. Reynolds had informed him that there were two bodies lying at the premises of the funeral directors, which would have been able to undergo autopsies. However, based off the notes he had made in his own daybook and other contemporaneous evidence, it was concluded by the inquiry that Dr. Reynolds had indeed provided D.I. Smith with that information. The bodies that were available for autopsy were those of Mrs. Lily Higgins and Miss Ada Warburton. It was later found that Shipman had murdered both of them. However, D.I. Smith failed to pursue with the coroner the possibility of autopsies on either or both of their bodies. In the report written by Janet Smith in 2003, she stated that she believed it was likely that if the coroner had been made aware either by D.I. Smith or Dr. Reynolds of her belief that Shipman may have been killing his patients by administering a drug, the coroner would have ordered an autopsy with toxicology examination. In the event, should it have happened, it is believed that the presence of morphine in either or both of the bodies would have been detected. Unfortunately, Mrs Higgins was cremated on the 25th of March 1998. Miss Warburton's body was available for autopsy until her cremation on the 30th of March 1998. Throughout the course of the interview of Dr Reynolds performed by D.I. Smith, it was determined through the inquiry that D.I. Smith failed to ask many important questions. He did not discover the basis of her concerns about the disparity 
he did not discover the basis of her concerns about the disparity between the death rates of Shipman's practice and her own. Nor did he ask to see the records from nor did he ask to see the records from which the rates had been derived. He did not ask why the features of the deaths which Dr. Reynolds had identified gave rise to concern. He did not seek to find out more about the circumstances of the individual deaths for which she had completed Form C. He did not seek an explanation of the proceeds for death and cremation certification. He did not ask to meet Dr. Reynolds' partners. As a consequence of these failures, D.I. Smith left the interview uncertain about the basis for Dr. Reynolds' concerns. And, in particular, with no understanding of the potential importance of the comparative death rates about which Dr. Reynolds and her partners were so troubled. Later, another medical colleague called Dr. Susan Booth would also discover the similarities and find them disturbing. She would alert the local coroner's office, who would then contact the police. A covert investigation ensued, but it cleared Shipman because it appeared that all of his records were in order. The inquiry failed to contact the General Medical Council, also known as the GMC, and nor did they check the criminal records, which would hold crucial evidence of Shipman's previous record. A more thorough investigation would occur later, revealing that Shipman had been altering the medical records of his patients to corroborate their causes of death. He continued to hide behind his status as a caring family doctor throughout it all, and his denial of all charges did nothing to assist the authorities in their investigation. It was established by police that in most cases Dr Shipman would alter the medical notes directly after killing the patient. This is believed to ensure that his account would match the historical records. However, what Dr. Shipman failed to realise was that each alteration of the records was timestamped by the computer. This enabled the police to ascertain exactly which records had been altered. As previously mentioned, it was Angela Woodruff who brought the police's gaze back onto Dr. Shipman. Her mother was Kathleen Grundy, who was, by all accounts, an active and wealthy 81-year-old widow. She was discovered dead in her home on the 24th of June 1998, following a visit from Shipman. Shipman advised Woodruff that an autopsy wasn't necessary, so Grundy was buried in accordance with her daughter's wishes. However, what was surprising was that another will existed and left the bulk of her mother's estate to Dr. Shipman. Being a lawyer, Woodruff had always handled her mother's affairs, and so, as you can imagine, this all came as quite a shock to Woodruff, and she was convinced that the document was a forgery. She believed that Shipman had murdered her mother and forged the will in, an, in order to benefit from her death. Woodruff alerted the local police, and it was there that Detective Superintendent Bernard Postles quickly came to the same conclusion after having examined the evidence. They exhumed Grundy's body, and a post-mortem revealed that she had actually died of a morphine overdose that had been administered within three hours of her death, which meant that it was done precisely within the time frame of Shipman's visit. Shipman's home was raided by police which would yield medical records, an odd collection of jewellery and an old typewriter. 
which would later be proven to be the instrument upon which Grinty's forged will had been produced. It was apparent to police from the get-go, just based off the medical records that were seized from Shipman's home, that the case would extend further than the single death in question. Priority was given to the deaths that would be more productive to investigate, namely those that had not been cremated and had died following a home visit by Dr Shipman. In the past, Shipman had urged families to cremate their relatives in, large num- in a large number of cases. He was stressed that there was no need to investigate further into the deaths of their loved ones, even in the instances where they had died of causes that were previously unknown to the families. In the situations where questions were raised, Shipman would provide computerised medical notes that would corroborate his cause of death pronouncements. Between 1970, when Shipman began working as a physician, until his arrest in 1998, it is estimated that he killed at least 215 of his patients, but it is thought that he may have murdered as many as 260 of his patients by injecting them with lethal doses of painkillers. So I'm going to do a little echo insert here on morphine overdoses. Since it was found that the cause of Grundy's death was morphine overdose. Morphine is an opioid pain medication and I have already discussed what to do in the case of an opioid overdose in a previous episode, Author for Murder. So in this episode I'm going to look at opioids from a different perspective. Let's look at how they induce respiratory depression. Opioids induce respiratory depression through activation of the U-opioid receptors at specific sites in the central nervous system. This includes a respiratory rhythm generating area in the pons. Full opioid agonists like morphine and fentanyl affect breathing with onset and offset profiles that are primarily determined by opioid transfer to the receptor site. While the effects of partial opioid agonists are governed by transfer to the receptor site together with receptor kinetics, in particular dissociation kinetics. Opioid-induced respiratory depression is potentially fatal but may be reversed by the opioid receptor antagonist naloxone, an agent with a short elimination half-life, which is approximately 30 minutes. The rate limiting factor in naloxone reversal of opioid effect is the receptor kinetics of the opioid agonists that require reversal. Agents with slow dissociation kinetics require a continuous naloxone infusion, while agents with rapid kinetics like fentanyl will show complete reversal upon a single naloxone dose. Since naloxone is non-selective, and will reverse analgesia as well. Efforts are focused on the development of compounds that reverse opioid-induced respiratory depression without affecting analgesic efficacy. And I do want to add like, when you've seen someone who's had a lot of opioid medications in a short space of time, um, you can actually see changes in the respiration rate. So. Their respirate, your normal respiration rate is like normally between 12 and 20, I believe it is. And their respiration rate will drop some to like eight, nine, ten breaths per minute. Um, so you actually can see it quite visibly, the change in the respirations. 
Anyway, back to the case, handing it over to Turtle. Just as a side note, to put it in layman's terms for some people, uh, this was the the uh, reduced respiration rate was something that was mentioned in the Michael Jackson uh, investigation because they said if his doctor was really sat at his bedside the entire time, he would have noticed the um, the reduced res- respiratory rate and should have been able to um, give. Yeah, that, I can actually give sense. a bit of an insight on that as well because. Um, when someone has had a large amount of opioids, so they may have had fentanyl, um, morphine, um, and some other opioid drugs as pain medications, for instance, um, you do actually check their respirations, well, you check their observations every 10 minutes. That will be blood pressure, um, heart rate, oxygen saturation levels, and respirations and checking respirations you do it over a minute so if you're doing that every 10 minutes to check the respiration rates yes you would see a very big difference it can be quite slow onset sometimes but you still start to see the trend in how many breaths are taking per minute back to the case The theorised motives. The motive behind his crimes remains unclear to this day. Some believe that Shipman may have had some delusion causing him to seek to avenge the death of his mothers. Others have speculated that he thought he was practising euthanasia by removing from the population the older people who may otherwise have become a burden to the healthcare system. Another possibility that has been raised regarding the motive for his crimes is that he derived pleasure from the knowledge that he, as a doctor, had the power of life or death over his patients, and that killing was the means through which he exercised that power. Despite his forgery of the will of one of his victims, his motives do not appear to be that of financial gain. Dame Janet Smith, a chairwoman of an inquiry into the career of Howard Shipman, has claimed that he had no concept of the value or sanctity of human life. In an inquiry into Britain's most prolific serial killer, she says that it is likely that he was possibly addicted to killing. After a year of studying his life's details, she was unable to come up with a motive for his murderous career. She's quoted as having written in the first 336-page volume of her six-volume report, quote, I regret to say that I can shed very little light on why Shipman killed his patients, end quote. However, elsewhere in the report, she states there is some evidence that he had an addictive personality and it is possible that killing was a form of addiction, end quote. Is it this? I think this is a good part to put this in. Um, I always thought that it, he, there was a rumour or it was suspected that he'd killed his mother. Um... Not from um, what I could tell, she died of cancer. Ah, uh, see, I thought he had the, you know, where she was having the morphine. Um, yeah. I always thought that she'd just had too much. That the, there was, I don't even know if I've read it or if it's just something that my brain's just kind of gone. Maybe. Um, so full disclaimer on this: if I'm entirely, entirely wrong, um, I don't have a source. Um that she where his mother was on morphine the it he'd there'd been an o, a morphine overdose 
she was put down as having died of cancer complications, but that there had been this morphine overdose and that he was overdosing his patients to basically relive and try and process his mother's death throughout the rest of his life. I don't know about that one because I didn't find anything about it when writing the script. Um, all I could find was that she died of cancer and I mean, that he gained this interest in medicine because of her cancer and seeing her prescribed morphine. Yeah, I mean, as I said, full disclaimer, I have no idea how accurate I am in that report, in, in reporting that or anything. I might be spreading misinformation, but um, I, I have no sources. It's just something that I thought I was the thing with Harold. Anyway, it's that time in the episode where we are going to take a brief break to relax for a moment, put our detective hats back on and test our true crime knowledge with this week's true crime quiz question. It is as follows. Police interviewed the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, nine times before his arrest, following a routine traffic stop. Police interviewed the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, nine times before his arrest, following a routine traffic stop, which led to him being charged with murder in which year? A. 1975 B. 1981 or C, 1984? If you think you know the answer, then comment it on the in the comments section below if you are joining us on TikTok or YouTube. Or if you're listening to us on Spotify or Amazon Music, then please do go to our other social medias or join us on YouTube and comment it there. We look forward to seeing what you think the answer is. Thank you, Turtle. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us on our other social media to stay tuned for next week's episode to find out the answer. Now, back to the case with the trial and aftermath. Over to you, Turtle. Following the extensive investigations, the police charged Shipman with 15 individual counts of murder and one count of forgery on the 7th of September 1998. His trial would commence in Preston Crown Court on the 5th of October 1999, his defence counsel attempted to have Shipman tried in three separate phases, one with physical evidence, another without, and the third to be the Grundy case, where the forgery differentiated it from the other cases. They also attempted to have it, the damning evidence that related to Shipman's fraudulent accumulation of morphine and other drugs thrown out. However, instead, all of their attempts were declined and the trial proceeded on the 16 charges included in the indictment. The prosecution asserted that Shipman had killed the 15 patients and claimed that it was because he enjoyed exercising control over life and death. They also dismissed any claims that he had been acting compassionately because none of his victims were suffering from a terminal illness. Woodruff appeared in court as the first witness. She impressed the jury with her forthright manner and account of her unremitting determination to bring the truth to light. Shipman's defence attempted to undermine her, but they were largely unsuccessful in doing this. Following her testimony was the government pathologist who led the court through the gruesome post-mortem findings. It was discussed that morphine toxicity was the cause of death in most instances. 
Then there was a fingerprint analysis of the forged will, which showed that Grundy had never handled it. Her signature was also dismissed by a handwriting expert as a crude forgery. Thereafter, a police computer analyst then testified how Shipman had altered his computer records to create symptoms that his deceased patients hadn't experienced. In most cases, he did this within hours of their deaths. The trial progressed onto other victims and the accounts of their relatives. This made the pattern of Shipman's behavior crystal clear. With a lack of compassion, one of the six C's of the NHS, a disregard for the wishes of attending relatives and a reluctance to attempt resuscitation of the patients being bad enough, something else came to light. There was another fraud. He would pretend to call emergency services in the presence of the relatives. Then he would cancel the call out when the patient was discovered to be dead. The telephone records revealed that no actual calls were ever made. Then, finally, the evidence of his drug hoarding was introduced alongside false prescriptions to patients who didn't require morphine. He would even overprescribe morphine to patients who did need it. This alongside the proof of his visits to the homes of the recently deceased to collect up unused drug supplies for disposal sealed the prosecution's case in a beautiful bow. His haughty demeanour throughout the trial did nothing to aid his defence in painting a picture of a dedicated healthcare professional. Despite all attempts made by his defence team, his arrogance and constantly changing stories when caught out in obvious lies did nothing to endear him to the jury. The judge gave a meticulous summation, but also a word of caution to the jury that no one had actually witnessed Shipman murder any of his patients. Despite this, the jury were sufficiently convinced by the testimony and evidence presented. They unanimously found Dr. Howard Shipman guilty on all charges on the afternoon of the 31st of January 2000. There were 15 counts of murder and one of forgery. Following this, the judge passed 15 life sentences as well as a four-year sentence for forgery, which he commuted to a whole life sentence that, and thus removed any possibility of parole. Dr. Shipman was then incarcerated at Durham Prison. In further investigations that delved more deeply into his patient case list history, the case of 15 patients murdered by a doctor that had sent a shudder through the medical community was proven to be insignificant. A clinical audit that was conducted by Professor Richard Baker of the University of Leicester examined the number and pattern of deaths in Shipman's practice and compared them with those of other practitioners. He discovered that the rates of death amongst Shipman's elderly patients were significantly higher and would cluster at certain times of day. He also found that Shipman was in attendance in a disproportionately high number of these cases. The audit estimates that Shipman may have been responsible for the deaths of at least 236 patients over a 24-year period. An inquiry commission chaired by the High Court Judge Dame Janet Smith examined the records of 500 patients who had died while in Shipman's care. 
In the inquiry, the 2,000-page report concluded that it was likely that he had murdered at least 218 of his patients. However, this number was offered as an estimation rather than a precise calculation. This is because certain cases presented insufficient evidence to allow for certainty. It's also been put forward since his sentencing that he may have taken his first victim within months of obtaining his license to practice medicine. Margaret Thompson was 67 years old when she died in March 1971 while recovering from a stroke. However, it's important to note that deaths prior to 1975 were never proven. He remained at Durham Prison throughout the investigations following his conviction and maintained his innocence. His wife Primrose and his family staunchly defended him. He was moved to Wakefield Prison in June 2003, making visits from family easier. However, on the 13th of January 2004, Shipman was found hanging in his prison cell at Wakefield. He had used his bedsheets to tie through the window bars of his cell. There does remain some mystery regarding the whereabouts of his remains. Some claim that his body is still in a Sheffield morgue. Others believe that his family have custody of his body, believing that he could have been murdered in his cell and wishing to delay his internment pending further tests. Following the atrocities carried out by Shipman being revealed, many doctors reported changes in their dispensing practices and a reluctance to risk over-prescribing pain medication. This could have very easily led to under-prescribing as a consequence. Death certification practices also changed. One of the largest changes that followed was the movement from single doctor general practices to multiple doctor general practices. Though it was not a direct recommendation, it was because the report stated that there was not enough safeguarding and monitoring of doctors' decisions. Something else changed as well. The forms required for cremation in England and Wales altered their questions as a direct result. One example of these changes is that the person organising the funeral must answer, quote, Do you now or suspect that the death of the person who has died was violent or unnatural? Do you consider that there should be any further examination of the remains of the person who has died? More so, the case of Harold Shipman serves as a reminder of the importance of ensuring that medical professionals are held to the highest standards of accountability and regulation so that patients are protected from any potential danger. Our thoughts and opinions. I feel just so awful for the families of these victims. Some of them would have never even been suspicious and just thought that it was their loved one's time. And then to discover that potentially they've been murdered, they must have some horrific guilt. I definitely think that he had more victims and I do believe that they will be from families that he'd built a rapport with early in his career who would never have suspected anything or any patients who had conditions that would have been terminal is going to be that sort of situation. I despise the fact that he unalived himself and left those families without answers. The best thing he could have done would have been to admit it and give everyone closure. 
I do feel though that the world is definitely better off without him. Sorry to those who are related to him, but I do feel deeply, deeply sorry for you. I can't understand how his wife stood by him, but then again, maybe that's because marriage means something different now than it did when they would have got married. Thank for better you, or for worse. For better or for worse, but not through murder. What bothers me most about this case is that other healthcare professionals raised concerns regarding shipment. Yet to me, it seems that the investigators just didn't take those concerns seriously. So many lives could have been saved if the investigations had been conducted thoroughly, but they weren't. Whether that was due to a breakdown in communication or the investigators just not believing the concerns, I'll leave that up to the listeners to make up their own opinions, but it truly does bother me. My heart does break for all of the victims' families. They could have had so much more time in this world to make memories with their loved ones, and it was stripped from them, stolen from them. I can only imagine how each victim's family feels, knowing the truth now. He was in a position of great trust and he broke it. And I can only imagine how that has affected the family psychologically and emotionally. I can only hope that the changes that have come about since shipment will protect patients and prevent a future shipment from arising. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. If you like this episode, please give us a like, comment and subscribe. If you're joining us on YouTube and if you're joining us on another platform, give us a rating and a follow. It all helps boost us in the algorithm. Please don't forget to join us on other social media platforms such as Facebook, TikTok, Instagram and Threads. We hope to see you again next week. Bye! Bye.